Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. All right, good evening, everybody. So first of all, let me apologize. Uh, I forgot something last week, and uh, I finished up our topic on sexuality, and I meant to tell you that I had at least two more weeks, and I just completely forgot. So I had several people ask me this week, what are you teaching on, what are you teaching on? And I said, well, I still got a couple more topics that I want to uh, uh, cover. So we'll at least, tonight we'll, do, we'll continue in our relevant cultural topics We'll at least go one more week, maybe uh, maybe two, before uh, before I start a uh, a new a new study. <clears throat> so tonight is going to be a little bit different, and that is I want to talk to you about a topic uh, that whether you know it or not is a relevant cultural topic. And the topic that I want to talk to you about is called progressive uh, Christianity. Now I'm not going to speak long about this. Um, I could have went into a lot of detail, uh, but I decided, you know, I just want to make you aware of it and uh, some of the some of the signs of it and uh, a few things. But before I get there, I want to answer two questions that came up from last week. So, uh, you know, when you teach the way I do, and I've been teaching for a long time, you get a lot of questions. And last week at the end of the service, I had two questions asked of me. They were both excellent questions, and but the thing is, they're also questions that I've been asked numerous times. They weren't the first time that I've been asked those questions. So I thought, you know what, these are such good questions, it, they were on the minds of at least two people. More than likely, other people have these questions as well. And they're both, like I said, they're really good questions. So I'm going to spend the first part of this tonight answering these two questions and then we're going to talk about progressive Christianity. And, and, and to be honest, when I started, I thought, well, these are two different subjects. But the Spirit had a way of just bringing them back together. And I'll kind of tie them all together here at the end. So here are the two questions. This is the first one. I had two really lovely young ladies come up and ask me this question. When does God consider a man and woman to be married? Now, that's a good question. In fact, that's a really good question. And one of the reasons it's such a good question is because if you know your Bible and you know Scripture, then you'll know that the Bible never tells us at precise point that God considers a man and woman or a couple to be married. It just never, never speaks to it. So what I'm going to do tonight for just a few minutes is I'm going to look at the three most common answers or the most common viewpoints. And uh, we're going to find out what, what we can learn uh, about this subject and see what the Bible says. So there are three fairly common answers to this question. And again, the question is, you know, at what precise point does God consider a man and woman to be married? Um, some people would say that it, it, it's when they are legally married in the eyes of the, of the government. Some people would say it's when they are ceremonially married. And then some people would say it's when uh, two people have sexual 
relations. So I'm going to look at all three of those. So here's the first viewpoint. Some people would answer that question by saying that God considers a man and woman to be married when it's legally a marriage in the eyes of the law or the eyes of the uh, government. Now, people that would uh, be proponents of this answer, they would, if I asked them, well, give me some scriptural support for that, they would go to several different places in the Bible where the Bible tells us to obey the laws of the land. Let me give you an example. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, you guys know this. We won't go into a lot of detail. But as Christians, we are commanded to obey the law unless that law is immoral or somehow unbiblical, right? Uh, Jesus, remember they came to him and said, do we pay our taxes? And what did he say? Yeah, pay your taxes. Render under God what belongs to God. Render under Caesar what belongs to Caesar. So as long as a government's law is not immoral or unbiblical in some way, then as Christians, uh, Paul tells us right there, we are to be subject to those laws. So proponents of this view would say that if the government requires you uh, to complete some process or some statute or some uh, follow some law or some procedure in order to be legally married, then that is exactly what you should do. And, and by the way, that's certainly biblical. Um, I've conducted several marriages. I actually got married I, I, so long ago now, I can't remember the whole process there. But uh, I've conducted a few of them. And I know what you do is you go to the courthouse, right? You get a license. Uh, they bring that license to the wedding. We do the marriage, and we sign and seal it, and somebody signs it and says, yes, they've been married. You go. Now, that's certainly not immoral to expect someone to fill out a license, is it? Certainly not unbiblical to do that. So I have no problem with that at all. However, you cannot make legitimate... You cannot base the legitimate... Legitim, I'll get it out here in a minute. The legitimacy of marriage solely uh, make it dependent on government statutes. You just can't do it. Why? Well, there's several reasons. Number one, marriage existed a long time before government ever did, right? You go back to the uh, Old Testament and you see people being married when there was no uh, government. Uh, what if there is no government? You, you can't... For, I, I remember watching a movie one time and it was about these Jews in Poland and during World War II... Uh, a bunch of them escaped out into this huge forest, and they hid out there for about four years. And uh, there, was, there was no government. The Nazis had invaded Poland. Uh, whatever government there was wanted to kill them, right? So they're not going to go to the local courthouse and get a marriage license. So they're living out there in the forest for all this time, and yet uh, they still married people, right? I, I, we would have no problem with that. So there's nothing wrong with obeying government laws, but at the same time, you can't base uh, the legitimacy of marriage solely on those laws. The other thing would be, what if government placed some kind of unbiblical uh, requirement or restriction on you? For example, let's say I went to the courthouse and they passed a law that said, hey, if you want to get a license, you've got to sign this thing here that... Uh, says you agree with same-sex marriage or something like that, right? And I'd say, well, I, I can't do that, okay? So I don't, I, again, as long as we can obey that and we can do it in a way that's biblical uh, and not immoral or anything like that, 
then certainly we should do that, but you can't base it on that. The second view uh, to answer this question is some would say that God considers a man and woman to be married when they com- complete some kind of ceremony. Now, I did a quick browse through cultures. I, it seems, I don't care where you go in the world, and it seems like this has been true all through time. If you go to Russia, you go to China, you go to India, you go to Asia, you go to Africa, you go uh, anywhere across the United States, South America, you go in the deepest jungles of the Amazon, every society and every culture has some kind of ceremony that people go through when they get married, right? Now, it doesn't, it can vary. You can get married in a church. You can get married out of a church. You can get married at a courthouse. Uh, they can say certain words or other words, but every, there, there's a ceremony, right? There's some type of ceremony that declares a man and woman uh, to be married. Now, what's interesting is that we know from Scripture in John chapter 2 that Jesus attended one of these ceremonies. In fact, it's where he performed his first miracle. John chapter 2 says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And if you go on and read, we all know that he went to that wedding. Now, listen, Jesus would not have attended that ceremony if he didn't approve of it, right? So the very fact that he attended it showed that he put his approval upon it. Now, that doesn't mean that God requires a ceremony. That's not saying that. But at the very minimum, it at least infers that a wedding ceremony is uh, acceptable in God's uh, sight. Now, here's the third one. And I've heard this one down throughout the years. Some people would answer and say that a man and woman are married the moment they have sexual relations. And you hear young people say this sometimes. Well, I'm married in God's eyes, right? Because we've, you know, we've had relations or whatever. So this would be, uh, and basically this is where proponents of this would, would go. They'd say, well, Ephesians 5.31, for an example, we could also go back to Genesis 1 and 2, uh, says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become uh, one Flesh. So the idea here is they come together as one flesh, they have relations. Some people would say, well, see, at that moment, God considers the two of them to be married. Now, let me just say no. Let me just answer that for you right now. The answer to that is no. Uh, in fact, I can definitively tell you from Scripture that God does not equate uh, sexual relations with marriage. No way, no how. Let me give you a few Scriptures. Let me go back to the Old Testament. Second Chronicles eleven twenty one says this: Rehoboam loved Micah, the daughter of Absalom, above all his wives and concubines. He took eighteen wives and sixty concubines, and he fathered twenty eight sons and sixty daughters. Does everybody see the difference? There's a wife, and there's a concubine. There's a marriage, and there's not. Relations didn't make the concubines wives. Everybody see that? That's Old Testament. How about this one? Everybody knows the story of Jesus and the woman at the well, right? Uh, the, the Samaritan woman, she says to Jesus, she said, the woman answered him. He says, go tell your husband or go get your husband. And she said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands, but the one you now have is not your husband. See, Jesus clearly understands there's a difference between a marriage and shacking up. You see that? You had five husbands, and you done, I guess you gave up, and the one you got now 
ain't your husband. That's what you got right now ain't a marriage. Let me give you another one. 1 Corinthians 7, 2. This is the Apostle Paul. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, remember our lesson last week, that is the Greek word pornea. Uh, basically, what I said last week is the Bible draws a circle. Inside that circle is relations between a man and a woman. That's a marriage. Everything outside of that is sexual sin. Everything. So Paul says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, which one of those would be premarital relations, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. In other words, you need to get married. So this is certainly not biblical. There is no biblical basis whatsoever for an unmarried couple to come together, uh, have premarital relations, and then somehow... Uh, declare themselves to be married uh, before God. One more thing about that too, and I want to separate that out. There, there are couples that can be legally married, ceremoniously married, but for some reason they're not able to consummate it. It could be because of age. It could be because of, uh, uh, I think sometimes about Joni Erickson Tata. Do you all know who Joni Erickson Tata is? And 18 years old, and she's paralyzed from the neck down, and and, you know, can't move, and, and she gets married. And uh, this man's taken care of her for years. It may be a situation like that where they cannot consummate the marriage, but they're still married, right? They're, they're still married. So here's the thing. How do we answer this question then? What constitutes a marriage in God's eyes? Well, I'm going to say three things. I, well, first, let me read Ephesians 5. This is probably the definitive scripture regarding marriage in the Bible. Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, you should love your wives as you love your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And then Paul makes this statement. It is an incredible statement. He said this mystery is profound, and he's talking about the mystery of a man and a woman coming together as one flesh. And he, he says, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage has three purposes, okay? Number one is procreation. Number two is sanctification. Number three is illustration. If you're married here tonight, your marriage has three purposes, right? Procreation, to have children. Not only children, but according to Malachi, you are to raise godly children. Number two, sanctification. There's something about that marriage that I say this often that inside a marriage, that's where the gospel has to be lived out, right? Mercy, grace, forgiveness every day, right? Mercy, grace, forgiveness every day. You get up tomorrow, you do it all over again. Mercy, grace, forgiveness. It's where the gospel, it's sanctification occurs. I mean, you, you meet in the middle, right? You, you, everybody's, you know, you're married. You know what this is all about. But the third one is illustration. The third one is illustration. And that means that our marriage is putting on, in some way, is putting on display the relationship between Christ and the church. 
And we'll talk about that in just a little bit more. So here's my answer to the question. And it's not a definitive answer, but here's what I say. As long as the requirements are not unbiblical, I think a couple should seek formal government recognition if available. So I've had people ask me sometimes, can I get married in the church but not tell the government about it? No. No, you can't. can't do that. My, my first question is, why don't you want to tell the government about it, right? But here's the biggest reason. Remember, one of the reasons for marriage is illustration. Why would I want to hide that? I want people to know. God wants people to know that you're married so they can look at your marriage and see the relationship between Christ and the church. Put it on display for the world. We shouldn't hide it. So that's the first reason. Same thing in number two. A couple should follow whatever cultural practices are typically employed to recognize a couple as officially married. Again, go through the ceremony. You do it publicly, privately. You can do it with two people or 200 people. But somehow or another, you want people to know you're married. You want to, to abide by those cultural expectations. And then number three, if possible, and again, this is not always possible, and we certainly understand that, but a couple should consummate the marriage in order to fulfill the physical aspect of the, of the one flesh principle in, in Scripture. So again, that's not a definitive answer. Um, but I think all three of those, if the government one can be followed, you should do it. It's not always going to be possible. There could be some odd situations. The ceremony should certainly be followed as well as consummation. Now, here's the second question. This one ain't going to be easy. You know, I've got a desire. I, I was thinking before I came up here tonight. Sometimes when I walk up here, I just want to I, I open this up and I just want to close it up and get and go home. <laughs> I've got this desire to be absolutely fearless. I want to be fearless when it comes to the Word of God, but I'm not. I have to overcome my fear to get up here sometimes and, and teach the Word of God because the Word of God teaches some things that I don't like to say. And tonight will be one of those uh, things. So this is a question that gets asked me very, I won't say very often, but it get, it's fairly common. And it was asked of me last week. Um, and this is the question because we read uh, in Matthew 19, and we're going to read that here in just a moment. A scripture was read where Jesus said something. And uh, uh, usually when I read that scripture, I get asked this question. So here's the question that I got asked. I'm divorced and I've remarried. Am I committing adultery? I'm divorced and I've remarried, am I committing adultery? Now, let me start here. The, God does not like divorce. Let me just say that right off the bat. I, I see some people would say God hates divorce. Let's just say God severely dislikes divorce. Okay, let me give you a couple scriptures. Malachi 2.16. This is from the Old Testament. It says this, For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, Covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. I would encourage you to read that when you go home. Uh, the, the, in the context, the people are coming to God and they're saying, where are you, God? We, we come down to the altar and we, we cry and we wail and we mourn and, and we, we ask for you and, and you don't show up. And God says, well, you, you're not. And his thing was, look what you're doing. You're not faithful to your wife. Why would I listen to you? You're not faithful to your wife. 
And he, and he makes a statement there. He says, the man who divorces his wife covers his garment with violence. Violent. What does that mean? Well, you've done violence to your family. You've done violence to your children. You've done violence to Scripture. That, that illustration that God wants to put on for the world, you've done violence to that. He doesn't like that. It's not, a, it's not a good thing. Now, we come into the New Testament. Matthew 19. These are the words of Jesus. And again, some Pharisees come to him. And by the way, if you go back and look at it in context, there were two different uh, sects of uh, S-E-C-T-S of Pharisees. And one of them thought you could divorce your wife for anything. If she burnt your chicken, you could divorce her, right? Whatever. And the other one said, no, no, no. It's, it's a little more stringent than that, right? Um, because the Old Testament, we'll read this here in a little bit, just says if a man finds in his wife some indecency. That's all it says. And some people would say, well, you know, if she, <laughs> if she didn't wash my, my best clothes, I'm, that's indecent, right? I'm going to divorce her. So they come to Jesus testing him, and they really, honestly, they don't care what he has to say. They, they're just trying to find some, something they can, they can use against him. So this is their question. They came to him, and they tested him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So, no, they, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. And here's his answer. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay? And they said to him, well, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And there's the scripture right there. Whoever divorces his wife except in the case of sexual immorality and he marries another, you commit adultery. And, and I read this scripture last week. We weren't really talking about divorce and somebody saw that and came up and said, well, hey, that's, that's me, right? Am I committing adultery? Now, let me say this. In our culture where divorce is so common, okay, that scripture almost seems shocking. Would you agree? I mean, it really does. It almost seems like, what planet is he on, man? I mean, it's so common. But what I want you to understand is this is not new to the 21st century. It shocks everybody in every culture. I just read to you Matthew, what, 19, 3 through 9, I want you to read verse 10. And the disciples said to him, if, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Now, I want you to think about that. Th these are Jewish men. They have been raised, of all the cultures in the world, they've been raised under the law of Moses. They've been raised with the temple. They've been raised with all, you know, every blessing that God could, could give them. And when Jesus said... Don't get divorced except for sexual immorality. Their response was, it's just better if we don't even get married. That's, by the way, that's how low a view of marriage they had. It's, it's, a, it's an incredibly low view of marriage. But the fact is, in Malachi's day, which was written in roughly 440, 430 B.C., divorce was rampant. Divorce was rampant and common in first century Palestine, just like it's 
divorce is rampant and common in 21st century America. So this is not, don't ever sit and think, well, it's, it's worst here. No, it's always been this way. Yet, in God's word, he hates divorce. Now, the question is, why? Why is it such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal? Well, let's go back again. The three reasons for marriage. Procreation, sanctification, and illustration. In, in the Old Testament, I don't know if y'all have ever read the book of Hosea. It's a crazy book. Uh, there's this guy named Hosea who's a prophet. And God comes to him one day, and this is, this is right at the very beginning of the book, and he says this to Hosea. It says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go and take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And anyway, he tells Hosea, Go marry a prostitute, and go have children with that prostitute. Hosea's life, in his single life, him, was supposed to be a picture to the nation of what was going, what they were doing in their rebellion. Everybody with me? He's saying the people are, they're, they're, they're prostituting themselves with other gods. So I want you to go marry a prostitute and actually have a picture out there that everybody can see so that they can see what they're doing to me. Now that was Hosea. The difference is in the New Testament, every single one of our marriages is that picture. In the Old Testament, it was just Hosea. But in the New Testament, it's every single one of us. Let's read it again, Ephesians 5, 31 to 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Paul says this mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. My marriage, your marriage, is an illustration of the relationship between Christ and His church. Our faithfulness to our spouse in our marriage is meant to illustrate God's faithfulness to the church or Christ's faithfulness to the church. Let me tell you, it's a big deal. It's an extremely, incredibly big deal. Now, let's come back to the question. If a couple gets divorced for any reason other than unfaithfulness, which is what Jesus said... Okay, sexual immorality of some sort. By the way, and we won't go into this tonight because this is not a lesson on divorce, but if you go read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul gives a second reason for divorce, and that is abandonment. So he says, look, if you're married and your spouse just leaves you and there's nothing you can do about it, Paul says you're free. You're free. So that is another reason, okay? But for tonight, let's just focus on what Jesus said. If a couple gets divorced for any reason other than unfaithfulness, and then either one remarry, are they committing adultery? You want to answer that for me? Yes. Yes. And by the way, I didn't say that. He said it. Not me. He said that. I'm just telling you what he said. I, in fact, I can't answer that question any other way and be faithful to Scripture. The answer is yes. Now, this leads to a second question. Should the person who seeks to follow Jesus stop committing adultery by breaking off the second marriage or whatever marriage that may be? Should you end that marriage? 
And the answer to that is absolutely not. Absolutely not. Whatever the nature of the second marriage, it never, ever justifies a second divorce. Okay? Now, why do I say that? Well, we know from Jesus' words, and I'm using his words, not mine. I'm not going somewhere in the Old Testament. I'm using the words of Jesus. So I'm going to justify what I'm saying by his words. So we know from his words that he would see this second marriage, in this case, as adultery. But we also need, know from the words of Jesus that he sees it as being more than that. He sees it as a marriage. Okay? Let's go back in the woman at the well, right? The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right. I have no husband, but you have had what? Five what? Husbands. You've been married five times, he says. The very fact, and, and he goes on to say, the one you have now, it's not your husband. So he recognizes that she's been married five times. He recognizes that that is a legitimate marriage. Matthew 19, 9, even in the scripture we just read, it says this, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for sexual immorality and does what? Marries another. Jesus knows the difference between getting married and shacking up. And he's telling you get married. He sees that as a marriage. This means that he sees it as a covenant relationship. And marriages are sacred before God whatever their conception is. A lot of people are married outside the church. They're married, they're not even Christians, right? They're, they have no concept of what a marriage really is. But marriages are created by God. They're formed by God. They are ordained by God, regardless of, of, the, of, of, the, of the humanality stuff that goes into it, if that makes sense. So the God who hates divorce does not make an exception for a second marriage. Okay, so it seems to me, I mean, think about it. If a person were to divorce their second spouse, you're doing the exact same thing that the Bible tells you not to do. You don't absolve one sin by turning around and committing another. So here's, here's my thing. A marriage is a marriage. No matter the circumstances, once you are married, you should devote yourself to making that marriage, to honoring God through that marriage, by making that marriage an illustration of Christ's love to his church. Are you with me? No stones? Nobody's pulling rocks out of their pocket? So let me ask another question. Let's ask this. Well, if adultery is sin, why didn't Jesus just forbid remarriage? He could have just, he could have just forbid it, but he didn't. And that's a really good question. And I think the same reason he didn't forbid it is the same reason he didn't forbid it in the Old Testament. Because God under I mean, God's got, God's got an ideal for us. And I tell people all the time, the closer you can stick to his ideal, the better things are going to go. Because he knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows, the, he knows the hardness of our hearts. He knows the human condition. And he knows the pain that divorce causes he knows is that all the stuff that comes with it, and he wants us to stay away from that. But he also understands that we're human beings, and we're going to make mistakes. But go back to Deuteronomy 24. I referred to this earlier. This is the scripture that the Pharisees were talking about uh, in the Old Testament. 
It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she then finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. So he allowed divorce. He didn't like it. He didn't want it. It wasn't his will. But yet he understood because of the hardness of men and women's heart that it's, it's going to happen, right? And remember what he told when he created Adam, before he created Eve, what did he say? It is not good for man to be alone. We are made for relationships. So it's just pure mercy and pure grace that when we mess things up, he doesn't say, well, you've got to live the rest of your life all by yourself. He, he, he doesn't do that. It's not his, again, it's not his best. It's not his will. But it's certainly his grace. I think Jesus is doing the same thing. He says in Matthew 19, when they ask him, why did Moses allow people to get divorced? He said, because it's of the hardness of your heart. He knows you're just dust. You're just human beings. You're going to make some really bad mistakes. But from the beginning, he said it wasn't so. That's not the way it was intended. So I think God's answer to hard hearts in the Old Testament was to grant divorce, by the way, an action that God hates. But he allowed it, even though it, fell, it falls short of his glory, it falls short of his perfect will, and it was sinful. In the New Testament, he allows remarriage again, even though it falls short of his perfect will. So this is my answer to that person that asked me that last week. And, and, and I said, well, according to the Scripture, the answer is yes, you are, but, but, you're remarried now, and God sees that as a marriage. So accept His grace, accept His forgiveness, accept His love. Walk out of here and go make that marriage the best illustration of God's love for His church that you possibly can. Honor God by doing that from this day forward, and, uh, and, and, and you'll be well off. All right. Now, I answered those two questions. I want to turn to something called progressive Christianity. This is going to be short, very, very short. Um, some, how many of you have scrolled through websites, you've, you've gone to podcasts, you go to YouTube, and, and you're starting to see more and more headlines like this, right? Methodist Church to allow same-sex marriage. Episcopal Churches bless same-sex marriage. Presbyterian Church recognizes same-sex marriage. Baptist Church votes to okay gay marriage. You're seeing this more and more and more. There is a movement out there today, predominantly in Protestant churches, okay, that identifies itself as Christian. And what makes it so subtle is they claim to follow Jesus, and they claim to, to believe the Bible, and they utilize Scripture, and they, they employ a Christian vocabulary. You know, all the words that we know, like, like redemption and atonement and grace and mercy and forgiveness, they use all those same terms. Yet, it, and it sells itself as really a more acceptable version of Christianity, um, more likable, more palatable version of the faith, if you, if you will. But more importantly... They sell themselves as a, ver a version of Christianity that is true. Okay? They, this is the true Christianity. This is how God really wants us to be. But it is a false gospel. It's not the gospel. It's a false gospel. They're trying to reinterpret the Bible, reassess historic doctrines, and redefine core tenets of our faith. Now, by the way, 
Please don't let that surprise you. Okay? We were warned about this over and over and over in Scripture. Jesus warned us about it. Matthew 17, 715. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Everybody understands what that means, right? They dress up like sheep. They, they, they're inside their wolves, but they look like sheep. They talk like sheep. They, they act like sheep. They use the same words that sheep use. They, they carry a Bible with them. They, on the outside, if you're not really careful, they look like sheep. But inside, they are, they are ravenous wolves. Peter put it this way, 2 Peter 2.1. But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15 says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And then finally, in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passion. So we are warned about this all through the New Testament, right? There are going to be people who come into the churches. They're going to act like sheep. They're going to look like sheep. They're going to claim themselves to be apostles and teachers, but they're false. They're not real. Okay? Now, how do you know them? How do you recognize them? Well, you have to look at the things they affirm and the things they deny. And again, I'm not going to go into a long study here tonight, but I just want to show you a few things. They're almost solely focused on social justice, okay? They're not interested in changing your heart. They're interested in changing how you act, right? So they'll focus on things like abortion and racism and environmentalism and things like that. Uh, they almost every one of them will aff affirm pluralism. If you don't know what pluralism is, that means there's many ways to God. You might love Jesus and you might think Jesus is best for you and you do your thing. And Buddha, the, them people, the Buddhists, they do their thing and the Muslims do their thing. And, and in the end, we're all going to get to God. Just do your best. They also will affirm that human beings are basically good and not evil. They'll focus on moralism. Uh, it's more important what you do than what you believe. But there is one thing that is absolutely almost 100% common uh, amongst this movement. And that is the affirmation of same-sex relationships and same-sex marriages. It's almost 100% common uh, across this movement. This is one of the hallmarks, one of the foundations. And, and again, remember, we talked about gender two weeks ago. Last week, we talked about sexuality. So it, that's kind of the, one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up. But one of the hallmarks of this movement is a shift away from traditional uh, biblical uh, ideas or biblical beliefs about sexuality and gender. One of the things they say sometimes in their articles, they'll just come out and say, God isn't concerned who we sleep with. Okay, so there is, it's almost universal acceptance of same-sex relationships and marriage. Also, there, there's a growing belief in the validity of transgenderism and a, reject, a rejection of, of gender norms. Now, you may look at that and say, okay, how, how can they call themselves Christians 
and believe those things, which are so clearly not the gospel, right? How, how can they believe those things? Well, you have to go back and look at the things they deny. For example, they deny the existence of sin. In their teaching, they never talk about sin. God loves you just the way you are. Your problem is you're not, sin has not separated you from God. It's just your shame. Get over your shame. Be proud of who you are. And you'll find your way back to God. By the way, if there's no sin, then there's no atonement. There's no need for the death of Christ on the cross, right? They don't believe in the deity of Jesus. Uh, remember what we said last week? One of the re reasons we know, uh, you know, we can't just look at Jesus in the Gospels and say, well, he's a nice man or a nice teacher. Jesus was at creation making everything. Jesus was on Mount Sinai. He is part of the Trinity of the Godhead, right? They say, no, 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 we don't, we don't believe in all that. They don't believe in the sinlessness of Jesus. Jesus is kind of like, in their view, a big brother. And he kind of came down here and he kind of showed us how we should live. And let's just follow his example best we can. Right? But here is the biggie. And this is why I'm bringing this up tonight. This is where they can get all of this stuff. They deny the Bible. They deny biblical authority and biblical inspiration. Basically, they look at the Bible writers and say, you know, them guys that wrote the Bible, they, you know, they kind of, you know, back in the, you know, wherever they were over in Palestine and, and in the Old Testament, you know, they, they, they were doing the best they could, but they're not as evolved as we are. They, they haven't progressed. In fact, that's one of the reasons they call it progressive Christianity, because they see us progressing to a higher and higher plane. So they just kind of see the Bible as a good book to kind of go by, but it's not the Word of God. You shouldn't take it literally, whatever, whatever it says, right? And by the way, we've said this before, right? Once you step away, to that, away from that book, <laughs> do whatever you want to do. Say whatever you want to say, right? It's a really interesting thing. I want to read a few quotes from them, and I've just got about five more minutes I got one of their uh, progressive uh, pastors and writers, a guy by the name of PDNs. He says this, The Bible is an ancient book, and we shouldn't be surprised to see it act like one. So seeing God portrayed as a violent tribal warrior is not how God is, but how he was understood to be by the ancient Israelites communing with God in their time. I want to ask him a question. Well, how do you know? I mean, who makes that kind of statement? That's not how God is. Well, how do you know? If you don't have the Bible, how do you know anything about God? You see this over and again. Here's uh, Adam Hamilton in his book, Making Sense of the Bible. He says, The biblical stance on homosexuality seems out of sync with God's will as we understand it today. Okay. <laughs> Where do you get that from, right? If you, if you, I mean, what makes you think God's will is different? It does not seem to reflect the heart of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The verses in the Bible about homosexuality and our response to them needs to be amended or changed. I'll give you one more. This is Walter Brugman, professor emeritus of the Old Testament at Columbia University. He says, I know those texts are in the Bible, but the Bible is a dynamic tradition that's always on the move to new truth. So this is how they see, they, they see the Bible, they see people as evolving. Right? We're getting better and better and better. We're progressing, right? Listen, second, uh, this is not 2 Timothy 4.3. This is Proverbs, I think, 14.2. There's a way that seems right to a man, and the end of it is death. 
It is absolute death. Listen, there's no need. I said it last week. You don't progress Christianity because Christianity is perfect. You don't progress the gospel because the gospel is perfect. Listen, the Bible is where progress comes to die. Let's just be honest because the Bible is the perfect law of God. It is, it is fully, it's got everything we need. It is God's inspired, infallible word, and it is perfect just as it is. I close with this, and I, I didn't mean to juxtapose or compare these two things. You know, I started out by answering two questions. And I hope you noticed that when I answered those questions, I didn't answer it based on my opinion. I didn't answer it based on what the culture thinks I should say. I answered it based on the Word of God. Right? That's the only place we got to go for the truth. If you step away from that, then we might as well be reading fairy tales and, and getting morality stories out of that. See, every single one of us in our life has to make a choice. Do I choose truth or not? Do I believe the Bible is the infallible Word of God? And I'm going to live my life by it. Or am I going to just... And by the way, let me say this. A lot of Christians will, if you're not careful, you'll pick and choose. You'll, you'll obey the things you like, and the things you don't, you just kind of ignore. But that's called, remember, go back to our first lesson, that's called being a relativist. Truth just is based on your situation or whatever. We don't want to be that. We want to be fearless. Not just fearless in teaching the Word of God, but fearless in living the Word of God. So choose truth, right? Sometimes it's not easy. The answers that He gives us is not easy. But I'm still going to choose truth because He told me that I'll know the truth and the truth will set me free. Sometimes it's hard. It's hard to go to that doctor and get the, get the medicine and, and go through what you need to do to get better. But it's only that that's going to get you better, right? It's only knowing you're sick. It's only knowing that you need a physician. When you open that truth and you give yourself to it, trust me. Trust me, it will set you free. Let's pray. Father, we love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that your word is, uh, is timeless. It, there's no progressing your word. Your word is, is, is absolutely perfect. It needs no improvement by any man, how arrogant they are. How arrogant to say that they somehow know better than the writers of Scripture. God, I pray you'd forgive them, Lord. I pray, God, that you would turn them to you. That, that, that God, that even as they shake their fist at you, God, and rage at you, God, I pray, just show forth your mercy and your forgiveness and your grace upon them. God, help us at River of Life to be fearless. Help us to be fearless, not just in standing up for truth, but living truth in our own lives. God, if, 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 no matter what happens around us, that we each individually make that commitment to live out your truth as very best we can with all our, of our power in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, that we just hold on to your truth and live it. And we'll give you the praise for the difference that that's going to make in this body um, and the individuals that are going to be set free. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And we pray once again, God, give us wisdom as we move forward in these next few days and weeks. Uh, decisions need to be made, God, and I just pray for your wisdom. Wisdom. You said, Lord, if anybody lacks it, let them ask. I'm asking. We're asking. 
right now. We put it in your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank y'all. Y'all are just. Thank you again for watching our message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact our office at 850-926-1200 or email us at info.norwellcrossville.com. We also want to encourage you to visit us Sunday mornings at 10.30 or Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Please visit us at rollcrossville.com for more information.